the morning I'm going to be teaching on prodigals. Uh, it was a little over 10 years ago. We had just left my mother's house at Christmas for the family Christmas, and, and uh, our oldest son, uh, his name is Nathan, said, uh, said, we'd like to come over to your house. And Judy and I thought, oh, that's great. Nathan and Lisa got to come over to the house. And, and so they came over and have a seat, you know, and we thought, this is wonderful. And he goes, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn your world upside down. He said, let me just, I'll never forget this. He goes, let me just uh, tear the Band-Aid off. I no longer consider myself a Christian. He was 30. When a parent hear, hears a sentence like that, it is a gut punch. Wrongly, my response was immediately in my mind, I can talk him out of this. If it gets to the place where they're saying that sort of thing, they've already made the decision. You are not going to talk them out of it. See? Because they, they, have they have already filled in those blanks. He knows the party line. He grew up in a pastor's home. If it gets to the place where he's going to make that kind of statement to his parents, that train's left the station. And we talked um, for probably three or four hours. And at the end, they said, well, listen, we, pr we probably ought to go. And I remember Judy and I stood up, and Nathan and Lisa stood up, and I just, well, I just embraced my son and just sobbed in his heart. That was the reason they had not had children, because they couldn't come to any agreement on how the, their children would be raised. They now have two daughters, <coughs> Lely. Leliana is nine. Brienne is seven. The girls, he will not let the girls go to church or go to church camp. They've never been to a VBS. It's tough, you know. But good news is we've got a wonderful relationship with him. My sister Amy and Dick know him and Lisa well. They're wonderful people, good marriage, good dad. Uh, we've got a lot to be grateful for. That, that not only sent him on a journey, it sent his parents on a journey. Judy and I, and we have good days, bad days. There are days I'm full of faith. There are other days I'm scared to death. It will affect your theology. I'm becoming more of a Calvinist these days. What it has afforded it has given Judy and me an opportunity to join hands with thousands of people around the world, Christian people, pastors, who have prodigals. Tell you what, you beat yourself up. The teaching you're going to hear this morning, and if we have time at the end, I'll give you some uh, time for question and answers. I don't have too many answers, but I can, I, I've got some perspectives. Uh, I'm going to read the text again, and as has been the practice, I want us to interact with the text. The danger of reading a familiar story is twofold. A, oh, I already know what that story is. And B, it, uh, 
story of Zacchaeus, it was put in there for the VBS and flannel crowd. You know, it's, it's a kid's story, it's not for us. Be very careful before you say that. This is a powerful story. You're going to discover some insights from this story you have never heard before. Let's read it, and I want you to get your pen out, and let's interact with the text. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. By the way, he is en route. He made three trips from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem in the cent central highlands up to the Galilee in the north. Jesus would often do that, three different trips. By the way, as I said to you, I think, the other day, um, that would be similar from going from South Bend, Indiana to camp in terms of distance. However, when Jews went from, and by the way, he would do that to, to get away from the, the, to get the heat off of him, not temperature-wise, political. Anytime Jews would travel from Jerusalem up to the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, they could not go as the crow flies. Why not? Because you got to go through Samaria. And you don't do that. See, it's a bad part of town. So what they would do, they would take, and still call this to this day, they would take the Jericho Road, and they would head east on the Jericho Road. Remember, Jerusalem is at elevation. It's at altitude. Jericho, Dead Sea, lowest point on the face of the earth. So you are going thousands of feet in just a matter of a few miles. It's not long. And so there's a whole bunch of switchbacks. There still are. I remember when the first time I was on the Jericho Road, we're on this tour bus, and we go around the corner, and all of a sudden, whoa, there's a dude on a camel. Almost hit him. And so you got these switchbacks and these big boulders, and, and that's why when Jesus says, well, there was, a, there was a guy who was walking on the Jericho Road, and he was accosted by thieves. Well, if you're ever on the Jericho Road, you can see that because with all the switchbacks and the boulders, people can hide and assault you. They still do. And so Jesus was um, what he would do, he would go take the Jericho Road down to what is now the Allenby Crossing, the checkpoint across the border. He would go through Jericho, which is a border town, and then he would go north up the, the, the Rift Valley, which is the Jordan River, up to a place near the Sea of Galilee, which is called Beit Shan. It's where when uh, King Saul was killed... His body was pinned to the walls at Beit Shan. He crosses over at Beit Shan and then he gets up in the Galilee. So rather than going boop, boop, he's got to go, he's got to go, uh, I'm going to show it to you. He will go east to the Jordan, up the Jordan River Valley, and then back over. And he would come back the same way. He traversed that three different times in his ministry. This was the last. What you don't know is that he is on his way to Calvary. He is coming out of the Galilee, down the Jordan, uh, the Rift Valley, and he's crossing over at Jericho, and this is when he encounters Zacchaeus. In Jericho, they have what's called the Zacchaeus tree. It's a huge sycamore tree. It's probably not the same tree, but it's probably some of the root systems are probably from that very same tree. It's still there. Jesus entered Jericho and was what? Passing through to where? 
Jerusalem to die. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a, watch, chief tax collector. Circle those terms. And was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the what? Yeah. What is the direct object of, I was an English teacher, what's the direct object of the verb reached? Answer spot. Put a square around that word. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I, the next word's an adverb. What is that word? Must. Of all words to pick out, right? Put a square around the word must. Unless you understand spot and must, you won't understand the story. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. End of verse 7. I want you to put a vertical line separating verse 7 from verse 8. Why is he doing that? It will make sense. A vertical line separating verses 7 and 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back what? Why would he say that? Because that is, that is, a, that is a cultural custom for restoration. When Nathan the prophet uh, confronted David... He talks about this idea of if he killed his lamb, he owes him four lambs. In Jewish culture, you quadruple restoration. And so he's just not picking these numbers out of the air. He is doing what is culturally acceptable to demonstrate the fact that he is, he recognizes wrong. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to Zacchaeus. No, salvation has come to where? Why? Because of the principle of solidarity. We talked about that, remember? They think collectively. We think independently. The rest of the world thinks collectively, see? And so you see it reflected even in this passage. Because this man, too, is a... Would you underline that phrase? See, you, you, we read this stuff and we just go, okay, yeah, whatever. Well, there, there's a reason he says that. It helps unlock the text. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, let me give you a few quick observations concerning Zacchaeus. This is the easy part. Here we go. Jesse, next screen. First of all, observations about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Think about that. But the Bible says he was not only a tax collector, he was what kind of tax collector? 
which means that, that, yes, a chief tax collector, which means he was over other tax collectors. Now, you have to understand, by the way, to be a chief tax collector in Jericho, why would that be important? Because it is the approach to Jerusalem. Jericho, to this day, at the Allenby Crossing, you cross from Jordan into Israel. And so this is on the spice route. You've heard of the Silk Road and the spice route out of Arabia? Jericho was the approach for the spice route and the Silk Road. So, dude, guess what? I'm setting up shop there, Jack. By the way, the, I will charge you according to how many wheels you have on your cart. And by the way, what are you carrying? Uh, incense, myrrh, cinnamon. Okay, yeah, that gets charged triple. He's Jewish, which means now he's in cahoots with the Romans. The Romans have him in his pocket. So, by the way, when this guy walks away from his cash register, he's walking away from his livelihood. So not only do the Romans now hate me because I work for them and skim a bunch off the top, but Jews hate me because I was in the Romans' back pocket. So this is what he's doing is pretty remarkable. Ze uh, Jericho is one of the key taxation centers of all of Israel. As a result, next screen, Jesse, guess what? He will have incredible wealth. Not only are you a tax collector, dude, you're a chief tax collector. See? Now, what's interesting is that he's got a cushy job and a cushy income, and yet he still has this need in his heart. Because what you're going to discover, and this is what you need to pray for your prodigal, that, that his or her job won't satisfy, neither will money. What we learn from that is he was dis... I, I, need, I need to see Jesus. Why? Dude, you got the greatest job in the world, and you've got, you got more shekels than what you can shekel your, your fist at, see? So it, it, what I think what the biblical narrator is telling is apparently his job and his income didn't satisfy. He also had physical limitations. Why? Look at the next screen. Again, I think what is being presented to us are key ways we can pray for our prodigal. Lord, may the wine run out literally for some, may their job not satisfy, may material and financial ends not, not give them contentedness, and use built-in limitations within their own lives to cause them to be compelled to search for you. You're already thinking to yourself, I had no idea that was in there. Finally, number four, next, he was curious. Again, 
That's a fourth way we can pray. Instill within her heart this compulsion, this desire, this curiosity to search for you, to seek for you. He had her, why, by the way, why was he interested in seeing Jesus? Because news travels fast through the grapevine. I'd heard that even he didn't call the tax collector to be one of his disciples. What was that guy's name? Yeah, Levi or Matthew. I don't think that hadn't passed by him. News runs fast. By the way, how did news travel in those days? They don't have CNN. They don't have Twitter. They don't have cell phones. How does news travel? Yeah, trade routes and caravans. And by the way, where was he living? Uh, suddenly you realize, oh, he is at, you know, the, the cross-section of all the news, international news coming through. And suddenly it begins dawning you that, on you that there's more taking place in this story than you'd ever imagine. See? Okay, having said that, let me kind of uh, unpack some of those things that you circled, underlined, and squared. Next screen, watch. Oh, man. Can you read that very well? Okay, I will read it for you. Though, and you're gonna, I'm giving you space around the outline and on the back where you're going to need to write. The word must in the Greek language is always used, particularly in the Gospels, in the context of Jesus having a divine appointment. This is new information for you. The word must is always given in the context of Jesus having a divine appointment. I've given you some examples. Jesus, when his, remember his parents lose him for three days at the age of 12, and they look and look and look, and where do they find him? Yeah, they find him in the temple teaching, and all the scribes and Pharisees and, and the religious teachers of the law are going, dude, I mean, this guy, wow. And they said, and Mary is the one who speaks, which is interesting. Where have you been? Dude, I mean, I mean, I have I had a heart attack. What's going? What are you doing? His response: I must be about my father's business. I have a divine appointment at this point in my life. And by the way, the age of twelve is critical for a Jewish young man. Can you say bar mitzvah? So he had this compelling recognition of his calling as the son of God to be about a different father's business, not Joseph's, which, by the way, as the oldest son. Was Jesus the oldest of their kids? Duh, she was a virgin. Now, they had, she had siblings, or he had siblings, but they would have been half-brothers and half-sisters. Why? Yeah, because they did not have the same father. Remember, because of the immaculate conception, Joseph was not his biological dad. And Scripture will tell us he has other half-brothers and half-sisters, one of whom uh, that he called to be a disciple, Jude, half-brother. Next, no, no, stay there, Jess, don't move. Uh, on the screen. I must preach the good news. 
he says. It is a divine appointment for me to preach the gospel. Next. No, 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 no. Jesse, sorry, my bad. Go back. I must suffer and die. I have this divine appointment at Calvary. Remember, he kept on saying, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, in just a few weeks, when he gets to Jerusalem, he will change, and this is what he'll say. My time has come. He had this compelling sense of divine appointment. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. And the last one is, I must go through Samaria. What does that come from? That comes from the woman at the well in John 4. Now, and once, once again, now that you understand the context, he's not going to go from Jerusalem all the way up to the Galilee by going down the Jericho Road, up the Rift Valley, and across over at Beit Shan. Now he's going as the crow flies. Why would he do that? Why did Jesus go through Samaria? Jews don't do that. Reason, I must do it. What's he saying? I have a divine appointment to meet this woman that I'm going to lead to me myself. That's why he goes through Samaria. I, I, I have this divine appointment to meet this woman at the well. And so part of the reason I'm explaining this to you is he has this divine appointment in the back of his mind regarding your loved one. Do you believe that? This journey that your husband or wife or brother or granddaughter, our son, this journey they are on, the Lord has in, in his mind a divine appointment, which brings us to the next issue. Jesse, you can now turn it. Reached the spot. See that? The word spot can be translated place of opportunity. Jesus says, I have a divine appointment, and it's going to happen at a particular spot. Watch my hands. Here's Jesus, and the microphone hand is Zacchaeus. And their paths converge. The Lord has in his plan a spot. And so the story, the narrator gives the impression that Zacchaeus is the one seeking Jesus. Guess what? Who's pursuing whom? See? The reality Let me push the pause button. Dr. Paul Robbins is considered Billy Graham's mentor. Does anybody know Dr. Paul Robbins? Paul Robbins was the president and CEO of Christianity Today. Personal friend of mine, personal mentor of mine as well. Now, I'm not in the same league as Billy Graham, but Paul Robbins and I were, were close friends. And Paul has been praying for our, my son Nathan. And Paul says, every, every night I can't sleep, and now I'm discovering that as the older I get. Uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. That happened last night. Amen. That's, that's exactly right. I, hear, I see that hand. And Paul said, I ran into Paul 
a few years back, and he goes, by the way, I got, was up in the middle of the night praying for your son Nathan, and God spoke to me. Really? Now, when God speaks to Billy Graham's mentor, Paul Robbins, I'm thinking, this is interesting. I said, well, what, what did God say? Well, when I was praying about Nathan, God, God whispered in my ear, Paul, I got this. What does that do to the heart of a dad? Well, what that tells me is that there is a, that what is happening in Nathan's life and in Jesus' life is that this is happening until they reach the spot. There will be this, con this convergence of conversion. I just made that up on the spot. <clears throat> Next, Jesse, here we go, dude. Did you know, this is not on your note outline, you're going to have to get writer's cramp here. According to research, and by the way, there is extensive research out there where they have interviewed prodigals. Great books, two, two books, they're out of print. You can get them on Amazon, dirt cheap. Book number one, Why Christian Kids Leave the Faith. A guy by the name of Tom Bissett, B-I-S-S-E-T. Tom Bissett, Why Christian Kids Leave the Faith. It's a great book. I was on a radio program with Tom, and, man, this guy just understands this stuff. Someday I'm going to write a book on this stuff. We've got a dozen of them, people who have written books. Billy Graham's wife wrote a book on prodigals because Franklin was a prodigal. Gives you hope, doesn't it? Other book, good news about prodigals. Good news about prodigals. I would highly recommend you get on Amazon. You can probably find it for $1.50. Good stuff. He says 85% of all prodigals, including the hardest cases, will return. Does that encourage you? 85%. The Dobson organization has the numbers even higher. 85% of all prodigals eventually return, including the angriest rebels. Next screen, Jesse. Here we go. Did you know there are reasons prodigals leave the faith? They just don't simply, I, I'm just going to walk away. There are reasons, and again, research has borne this out. There are reasons, and, there's, and I, I will cite, if I can remember them, it's in a different teaching and seminar. There are four main reasons they leave the faith. There are also reasons they return. It's almost textbook. There is a process of leaving, and there is also a process of returning. Don't interrupt the process. They didn't come to this conclusion overnight. You are not going to fix it overnight. And so, as Paul Robbins said, the, the Lord told him, the, the Lord's got this thing. You have got to believe that God is working out this process. By the way, God not only knows the heart of the prodigal, he knows the heart of the parents. Because what you don't realize is God is, one of the reasons he's allowing this is that he is using this in your life. 
Remember when we talked about God uses pain? I have learned more as a result of this process, something I'm extremely grateful for. I have learned more from having a prodigal son than almost any other issue in my life. Tell you what, it'll put calluses on your knees. The number of people who line up to talk with me afterwards just to tell their story. It is rampant. We are losing our kids and our grandkids. It's the dirty little secret of the evangelical church that nobody talks about, see. They will say the reason they leave, something else becomes more important. The Christian life no longer works for me. I have intellectual problems. I'll never forget when Nathan said, you know what? When I was going through these questions and concerns, I took a week off of work, and this is what I did. I took a week off of work, and every single day I went out in the woods with my Bible, and I prayed that God would reveal himself to me, and he never did. How do you respond to that? Thanks, God. Well, I'll tell you what. You start shaking your fist at the heavens, see. By the way, you want to know the most repeated prayer in the, old, in the book of Psalms? How long? How long, O oh Lord? How long? Be- because the most important thing for you as a parent is the when. The timing. You want to know something? God is not particularly interested in the timing. <laughs> when Jesus was talking about his second coming, what was the response of the disciples? What, when will these things happen? And what was Jesus' response? <laughs> it is not needful for you to know the times or the seasons. In fact, even the Son of Man doesn't know, do why, why are you asking the timetable, man? The reason you ask for the timetable is because you want the pain to stop. That's why. <laughs> I want my son to come back to the Lord yesterday because he got these little girls that are growing up, and I want him to be in VBS in Sunday school and come to Bayshore camp. You know? Next screen. Did you know, in almost every situation, research and interviews have borne this out, in almost every situation, when they come back, it is because of a person. It's because God brings a person into his or her life. Dot, dot, dot. Rarely is it the parent. You see, you think it's your responsibility to bring your kid back because you feel so responsible. Hardly ever is it the parent. So I recognized early on it's not going to be because of dad's persuasive arguments. See? 
He, he grew up in a pastor's home. He knows the scripture. He's heard his dad preach all his life. I'm not going to be the guy, and I know it. And so the, the idea of I'm just going to leave this track on his bedroom dresser. What are you thinking? We've got well-meaning family members who will forward to him articles they've found. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? By the way, God does not need your help. What's the most important thing you can do? And love him. And so the position Judy and I have taken is God doesn't need my help. He is perfectly capable. I mean, I can really be helpful, Lord. See, I mean, I'm a speaker. Oh, thanks, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need your... No, get out of the way. Because, by the way, if, if you force this thing, you can cause premature birth. When Jesus used the illusion of a, man, a person must be born again, you either you can, if we're not careful, we can intervene and cause a spiritual abortion or spiritual preemie, and that doesn't work well. And so you, we have got to trust in God's timing. He or she is on this orbit. Let the process play out. Isn't it interesting? And by, I wish I could do a teaching, maybe the next time I come, uh, on the prodigal son. Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. Remember at the beginning he said, give me. What was his tomb when he comes back? Make me as one of your hired servants. Give me, make me. Taker, receiver. Isn't it interesting? When he does this, the dad doesn't go, what? Dude, you're just going to spend this money and you're going to waste it. No, I'm not going to let you do that. You've got to let him go. Isn't it interesting? You, you don't see the dad chasing the kid down the trail, and dad probably knew what was going to happen. So you see this downward spiral begin. He goes to a faraway country. They will distance themselves from you. They won't call. It is, it is their way of, I, I have got to separate myself. That is part of the process. They will distance themselves from you. They will go and they will begin acting in ways that will surprise you. But what you need to do is you need to pray that the wine runs out. So this guy, this prodigal son, what does he do? He goes and he gets a job doing what? Taking care of what? Pigs. And by the way, what religion was he? He's Jewish taking care of pigs. Wow. Well, that didn't do it, so God will increase the pressure until finally, watch how his value system changes, and he began to long for the pods the pigs were eating. And then Jesus says, and no one gave him anything. You have got to let them hit rock bottom. If you step in and try to alleviate it, you're going to interrupt the process. 
the prodigal son's dad stayed away, prayed, and kept looking. Because the Bible says when he was a long way off, remember? It's this idea of I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm anticipating. And then Jesus uses this interesting phrase. When he had finally come to his senses. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, my father's hired hands are doing a lot better than I am. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. And What they're going to need to do is self-talk. And they're going to have to come to this on their own. As the Lord's working in them. And then it says, so he got up and went to his father. And so it's going to have to be at their own initiative that they, and now the return is a process. Leaving is a process. Returning is a process. You have got to understand that and cooperate with what the Lord is doing, not derailing it or enabling them. Lady came in my office, I remember a number of years ago, and said, my son, uh, he's on drugs and he's in jail and I need to go and post bail. No, you don't. Best thing you can do is let him sit in jail. He has, he has got to feel the full weight of the consequences. If you keep posting bail, you're enabling him. And I tell you, that is a hard thing to do. It's extremely difficult. And I don't have all the answers on that one either. Next screen. In almost every situation, God's reasons this is occurring in the life of your child, uh, God has his reasons it's occurring and the reasons it's occurring for you. The Lord is using this to shape you. Remember the illustration the other day of the hammer and the anvil. What I didn't tell you is that there's more than one hammer. Your spouse is a hammer that will shape you, and so is your prodigal. You will discover lessons in the wilderness that you cannot discover anywhere else. And so God is providentially and sovereignly using this situation for your benefit. Next screen, please, Jesse. Here we go. Sorry. Uh, insights from the text. I got to just go to white. Concerning Zacchaeus, change is possible. Notice I didn't say guaranteed because people often will come up to me and say, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. I'm claiming that. You can't claim that. It's wisdom literature. It's a proverb. Wisdom literature is a general truth that more often than not happens. So train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Most of the time, Solomon's telling us. So be careful. It is not 100% guaranteed. However, part of the solace that I take is Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at 
the day of Jesus Christ. If my son Nathan gave his heart to the Lord at the age of four, which he did, I can claim that one. He who began a good work in Nathan will bring it to completion when? At the day of Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. One of the most hedonistic individuals in the whole Bible is Samson. Womanizer, violent man. Remember? By the way, if memory serves me correctly, he ends up in Hebrews chapter 11. And at the end, when he finally comes back, and by the way, it was, it was through pain because he got blinded. And remember, he's standing with those, those pillars, and he pushes the pillars apart, and, and, it, comes, and all the, it comes a tumbling down. And, and it says, and Samson killed more Philistines in his death than he had done in his life, like 3,000 people in Dagon's temple. And then it has this interesting phrase, and Samson was buried with his fathers. What does that tell you? Manoah and his wife had died. They never saw it. And so I have got to come to terms with the fact I might not ever see it. And that's okay. But if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, that he who began the work in Nathan will bring it to completion, I'm hanging on to that one for dear life. They need, however, to want to change. That's why you can't talk an alcoholic out of alcoholism. Well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. That's not going to work. See, they have to truly desire to change, and only the Holy Spirit can produce that sort of impulse in their heart. You're not going to do it. Paul says, I did not come to you with persuasive words of wisdom, but I came to you in the power of the Spirit so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Your persuasive arguments and words of wisdom, they're not going to cut it because it's a spiritual issue, not a reason issue. And so it's, it's going to be the by the power of the Spirit, not by mom and dad bailing them out or bailing her out or getting mad or getting slamming doors or hanging up on them and... Number two, change is possible I'm sorry, sorry, number two, spiritual change in a person's heart will always be accompanied by visible lifestyle changes on the outside. What we see in the story. is Zacchaeus makes this determination to change. It will always evidence itself in relationships to others. Zacchaeus stood up and said, here and now I will, I will give. In other words, there, there is this demonstration of a change. And that's what we need to be praying for. As a matter of fact, that brings us to the part where it says, this too is a son of Abraham. Remember I had you underline that? What is Jesus saying by that phrase? Well, in Jewish culture, the phrase, a son of Abraham, does not mean that you're a Jew. Jesus is not standing up going, Zacchaeus is Jewish. 
That's not what he's saying. I mean, duh, everybody knows he's Jewish. What's the, what's the, 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 the phrase, the idiom, this man too is a son of Abraham? Okay, a, a, a son of Abraham is a person who is not Jewish simply because of his culture and being related to Abraham. He is Jewish, or he is a son of Abraham because his faith is like the faith of Abraham. He is a true believer in, the, in Jehovah. That's what it means. So Jesus was not saying Zacchaeus is Jewish, everybody. No, what he's saying is Zacchaeus is not only a Jew in terms of his nationality, he is a Jew spiritually because he has the faith that our father Abraham had. He's the real deal. Jesus is validating his conversion by that statement. Number three, Jesse, we cannot give up on those who need changed. You're going to have setbacks. Two steps forward, one step backwards. We cannot give up on those who need change. Rather, we must continue to pray, wait, and trust that God is working in their heart. I mean, that's all you can do. Now, that's going to frustrate you because you're going to want to try and get in and, and mess with it. You're going to try and monkey with it. Remember when I said that God will almost always use an individual? Remember that I said that? And rarely is it whom? What's that mean? It's going to be somebody else. So you need to be praying that God will bring a Jonathan into the life of your son. That God will bring a Naomi into the life of your daughter. Which means the rest of us, and by the way, Judy and I have been doing this. The rest of us in the body of Christ have a responsibility to befriend prodigals. You need to be indebted to me that I'm spending time with your kid because he's not going to listen to you anymore, but he'll listen to me because I'm not dad, see? And by the way, they're hard to love. They're hard to love. And so we've got prodigals of other people that we're praying for and spending time with, and they'll open up to us, but they're going to climb up with mom and dad, see? A couple key verses, and then the final principle, which will kind of be like biting into a buzzsaw. Here we go. Next screen, please. Two of my favorite verses. These are my life verses. You ready? John 7, 6. Jesus speaking, my time has not yet come. For you, any time is right. You think about that in terms of your prodigal. Bring him back now, Lord, my time's not yet come. Lord, she's shacking up and living with the guys, but my time's not yet come. For you, any time is right. You want it done now. But I have a timetable for this. And, and there is this process that they have to go through. Otherwise, it's not going to become real. They have to hit rock bottom. They have to sense this compulsion. And so that, that verse has been a gear shift for me to get me out of the ditch so often. Here's the other verse. It's at the foot washing. Next screen, Jess. Man, I tell you this one. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. 
you'll never wash my feet, says Peter. Watch the Jesus response. What I am doing now, you do not understand. Later, you will understand. Apply that to your daughter. What are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. Listen, if you insist on bowing at the altar of understanding, you're going to be one disappointed pup. Last time I checked, there's a famous book where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your... You see, you're trying to understand it. You're not going to understand it. You're trying to unscrew the inscrutable. See? Jesus, this is a promise, by the way. What I am doing now in the life of your prodigal, you do not understand. But guess what? Later, you will understand. My question is, how later is later? Well, at Good Friday, that later lasted about three days. Oh, now we get it. Now we understand. Some laters are going to take years until you understand. Now I see why that happened. Now I understand. Some laters you won't find out until eternity. So I don't know what your later is, see? But Jesus is giving you a promise. You're not going to understand what he's doing. See? And finally, we're going to finish up with this. And this is, this is gold. Remember I had you put that little vertical line between what is it, verse 7 and verse 8? Remember that? Do you know why I had you do that? Because there's a gap in the story. As commentators and scholars have looked at the story, they'd realize verse 7, or verse 6. So Zacchaeus comes down at once and welcomes him gladly into his house. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, verse 7 and a half should read like this. So Jesus went to the house of Zacchaeus. They talked for several hours. Zacchaeus had lots of questions, but Jesus fielded the questions, was patient with Zacchaeus, and shared with him. He told him, Zacchaeus, you are upset about many things. I've said that to Martha previously. Zacchaeus, it's not your job. It's not your money. It's not your relationships. And by the way, you don't have that many, dude. The only thing that can provide satisfaction in your life is a right relationship with me. I'm the Messiah. You're Jewish. You're looking at him. Unless you trust in me and my salvation, you're not going to find the, the contentment you're looking for. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, then Lord, I give you my life. That's verse seven and a half. Verse 8, so then in the house, Zacchaeus stands up and says, from this point on, I'm giving half, well, you know, it's in the Bible. So here's my question, why the gap? Why don't we have verse 7 and a half? 
why why doesn't Luke tell us what happens in that space? Answer, it was intentional. For the same reason he's not telling you what he's doing in the heart of your prodigal right now. We don't know the whole conversation that happened at the house of Zacchaeus. Any more than you know what's happening in the heart of your, of, of your daughter or your son right now. That's okay. Because you want to know something? Even though verse 7 and a half isn't in the Bible, story's not done being written yet. Story's not done being written yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in charge. We thank you for this process that our kids and our husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, our our grandchildren are going through. Lord, you're doing something new in our hearts. Give us grace. Keep us from being stupid. Prevent us from being enablers. Forgive us for trying to be the Holy Spirit. Help us to let go. Thank you for these dear people. And I pray, Lord, for each prodigal represented, bring a David or Naomi into that person's life. Cause the wine to run out. Help them hit rock bottom and turn their eyes to you. Enable them to do self-talk and to determine, I need to get up and I need to take steps back to my father and it will be a journey. May we be watching and praying as the prodigal son's dad was and embrace them wholeheartedly. They don't need a lecture. They need dad to love them. In Jesus' name, amen. What time do we have? 10.06. What time is this over? Okay, uh, if you have a question... I'd ask you not to tell your story at this point, but if you have a question, and I'll try my best. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Tom Bissett, B-I-S-S-E-T. Why Christian Christian kids leave the faith? Good news about prodigals. Anybody else? Question you may have. Who wrote them? Tom Bissett. He wrote both of them. Anybody else? Yes, sir. That's a good question. Statistically, are there more boys or girls? I can't answer that. I don't know. That's a really good question. And by the way, every situation is different. And because of that, God will uniquely work in every situation differently. See? Sometimes God healed blind people by spitting and putting mud in their eyes. Sometimes God healed blind people in the gospel by just touching them, see. And so God, depending upon the situation, the methodology is unique in every situation. So and this isn't cookie cutter stuff. Somebody else, anybody else want to raise their hand and ask something? Yes, sir. Well, yes and yes. Every situation is unique, 
Um, sometimes the harder prodigal in the story of the prodigal son was the older brother. He was a prodigal too, but he was just bitter. And so some of us have prodigal kids and grandkids who are still going to church. They, don't just, they, don't, they just don't give a rip. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go, but I'm not going to live it. And those are tough nuts to crack. It's almost easier when it's like the, the, the original prodigal son. See, the other ones are tougher. Our dad was like that. My father was the last person in our family to come to Christ. And he goes, why do I need to do that? Because I live a, a lifestyle that puts most Christians to shame. And he was exactly right. That was a tougher nut to crack than a person who is absolutely a drug addict and a, and a down and outer. So that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Anybody else? Maybe time for one or two. Okay. Hey, thanks for your attention. I'll be happy to chat with you up here at the front if you care. Uh, you're dismissed, and we'll look forward to seeing you. I'll look forward to seeing you later on tonight.